Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Minds to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, a serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. Today, our guest is Elisa Khan, author of From Startup to Grown-Up, and this book was fabulous. If, if you have the experience of being an entrepreneur, when you read this book, you're reading what you've experienced as an entrepreneur. So, Lisa, Alisa, welcome. Thank you, Mark. My name is actually pronounced Alyssa. Alyssa, wonderful. Yeah, perfect. Uh, please give us some of your professional history, because it's very impressive. Oh, thank you so much. Well, um, I was a journalism major, as I was telling you earlier, and I went to the nonprofit world. And then after a few stints in the nonprofit world, I think my moment of truth for this work came when we did strategic, I was the uh, chief of staff to the provost at a New England college. And we were doing strategic planning and the provost said, oh, you can't manage faculty because they have tenure. And I was pretty young, but I thought, well, that can't be that people will only do what you want them to do because otherwise you'll fire them. So I did a few things. I went off to um, the monitor group and did strategic management consulting. And then I went off to business school with that kind of ringing in my ears. I went to Cornell. At Cornell, the focus is very much on finance and accounting and strategy, which is what I focused on. I exited into PricewaterhouseCoopers, where I was on the so-called fast track to partner program. So five years to partner. Trust me, I thought my life was set. I had like my path. But sadly, my second moment of truth was I woke up and I thought, I hope I get the flu. So I don't have to go to work tomorrow. And I got the flu. So 18 uh -huh. hours later, I was rushed to the emergency room with the flu and I was down for the count. And I thought, this is not it. So then I had to figure out what was it. And I was seeking everything. And I found two things at the same time. I found coaching because I met an executive coach and I was like, what is that? I want to do that. And she was amazing. And I also found the startup world. In the 2000s, the startup world was sort of in its first, let's say, incarnation. I don't, don't want to say bubble, but you know, for what it was, it was around actually 1999. And I joined um, two startups. I was a CFO of one startup. I was the head of strategy of another startup. That all imploded. And I thought, okay, I'm going to become a coach now. And I put one foot in front of the other, first coaching individuals, then coaching at large companies, and then ultimately coaching in uh, certainly very well-known um, startups such as Venmo and Etsy and companies like that. And then also the corporate work I do, I work with clients like Dell, like Google, like Pfizer, um, IBM, and Hitachi, companies like that. Uh, let me let you know that we have people from uh, 11 countries that are listening. And Amazing. so they would like you to speak just a little bit slower because English isn't their first language. So, I apologize. Thank you for letting me know. Not a problem. Uh, so uh, we learned about why you want to be a coach. What are the things you work on with your clients? Like what's your, you know, your sweet spot with these clients? Well, the work I do is in leadership development. So that means a whole bunch of things. And I would say, broadly speaking, coaching is helping you think about where are you, where are you going, and how will you get there? And so that's kind of what I think about big picture as a coach. What that means is, really having to do with self-awareness. How are you showing up? Sort of how are you tuning into your internal dialogue, your internal kind of intuition? And how is that helping you understand how to read the room, how to manage people better? And then also I work with my clients on the specific tactics of leadership development. So how do you delegate? How do you give feedback? How do you hire? But then also bigger picture, how do you lead a team? How do you use your personal executive presence and charisma to bring people along? How do you communicate over and over again about the vision and about the goals so people are aligned and following you? That is a broad stroke of the things I work on with people. Yeah, and especially a lot of the technology people uh, who develop these do not have those inherent skills and they have to be developed over time. Yes, that is absolutely true. How did you build your coaching practice? Because I'm very impressed with 
uh, the range of clients you've worked with and the names you've worked with. So how did you build this practice? Uh, well, thank you for that. Um, I would say that I one of my superpowers is that I am very persistent. And when I get something in my head that I'm going to do, then I'm going to do it. So when I became a coach, you know, 20 years ago, I, I sort of decided on a Friday, I'd taken coach training, I'd worked, you know, sort of coached all my friends for free. And I decided, okay, I'm going to become a coach now. That was like on a Friday. So on Monday, I just started. And what that means is I started working with individuals for free, and then over time getting paid. And eventually, um, through a colleague, I'm, I'm a very, um, I'm a great networker. And specifically, I really believe in win-win relationships. So I have a vast network and a broad network. One of my colleagues said she knew I was a CPA, which I am still a recovering CPA. And she said, um, EMC is looking for someone to teach their business acumen in curriculum. So they're, you know, sort of financial acumen and financial courses. And you're a CPA. Are, are you interested? And no, I was not interested in that. But I thought, well, once I break into their training in the business section, I will certainly work my way into the leadership curriculum, as well as they will get to know me and I will be able to coach there, which is exactly what happened at EMC. Once I had that kind of under my belt, uh, a number of companies also began to reach out to me. I began to speak at other organizations because people would hear about me. And over time, um, it's really just a matter of referrals and also continuing to pursue different kinds of opportunities until you get your name out there. So just yesterday, I spoke at Google about my new book. Um, you know, I still do a lot of work with, um, with Pfizer. Um, and then, of course, building my reputation in startups has to do with moving to New York, Finding out that we are uh, that we that New York was building a startup ecosystem here right around the time I um, right around the time I got here and attending and organizing different meetups and being part of the community, but also just meeting people at various events who then brought me into their organizations. Well, and how long have you been coaching? I've been coaching about twenty one years now. My God! Oh wow! Well, congratulations. Uh, what are you. the skills needed to be a good coach? Because there's a lot of people who call themselves coaches and yeah. a lot of uh, entrepreneurs and business owners who are very disappointed um, by these folks who are faux coaches. Faux coaches, that's a good term. Um, I think that maybe three skills come to mind. I think, first of all, you have to have a very big capacity to listen to the other person, hear what they're saying and synthesize it into something that kind of makes sense for them. So very often my clients talk about the value I bring is by, first of all, hearing what they're saying and giving them safe space to talk out what they have in their mind's eye and then synthesizing it and feeding it back to them in a quick way. I think that my clients find that extremely valuable. The second is that um, for me, it's super important to have a very strong business background. I coach in a business context. I coach at a very high level as a CPA, as a business professional, you know, having had executive roles, that experience I think is very helpful because I've been in their shoes. And I think, you know, the third thing I think has to do with, uh, helping my clients hold the vision for themselves that they may not necessarily see. And I know that I myself look at somebody and I can sort of see the bigger picture around them and help walk, both guide them and walk beside them into uh, a broader set of shoes. Have you had anybody, it's, you work with them, you go, and, and everybody thought they'd be a star, but they're uncoachable? Um, I have worked with people who I consider to be uncoachable. Not that people consider a star necessarily. Well, I'll, I'll take that back. I think that if you talk about stars as in um, an excellent CFO or an excellent maybe um, founder, they may be great at the role and they may not be great leaders. And then I, as a coach, will come in. And my first question is always kind of, you know, I'm trying to assess for myself what's going on around here. And also for my client, what's in it for you? 
the truth is that, you know, coaching cannot change or fix anyone. I need to form a partnership with my clients. And the truth is, if someone says, here's Alyssa, she's your new coach. And my client doesn't want to make any kind of personal, you know, inner, inner growth changes and develop as a leader, then I can be the best coach in the world. And that person is not going to be more that that other person. There has to be kind of an inner um, motivation for sure. So why did you write this book? And again, it's a fabulous book uh, for people who have never been entrepreneurs before. And, and it gives you great insights and so forth. So why did you write this book? Thank you for saying that. Um, I wrote this book because for now, for 21 years, I've been a coach. And specifically for 15 years, I've been working quite a lot with startups. So I'd walk into a new situation and I would say, how often do you meet with your leadership team? And they would say, what's a leadership team? Or I would say, they would complain to me about some executive or employee who wasn't doing the things that they wanted them to do. And I would say, well, did you hire that person to do that? It turned out the hiring process is probably the mistake. And I kept thinking, I wish I had a book that I could hand to them to help them prevent avoidable mistakes. So I could not find that book. So I thought I want to write that book. It is kind of the sum total of my knowledge, having come into different environments over and over and over again to be able to share with founders and entrepreneurs early on their journey, but also far later on their journey, the certainly the um, experiences I've had from a broad circle, you know, from, from a broad array of clients. I will say that I, I, was, I was also inspired, as many of my clients are, by Ben Horowitz's book called The Hard Things About The Hard Thing About Hard Things. However, Ben's book is about me, Ben Horowitz. Yeah. And I thought there should be another book which is about a set of experiences. Yeah, and, and I think you did a great job of laying all that out. Why did you write to start the book? Uh, why did you write to start the book with that leadership as an unnatural act? Explain right. that. Well, leadership is an unnatural act. You know, the truth is that when you are a founder, if you probably have anybody actually has a natural communication style. So if your natural communication style is to be sort of quiet, close to the vest, not sharing things. Well, that's not going to work for you. We have to train that out of you because you really have to learn how to communicate what you're thinking, keep the company um, in alignment, keep people in alignment. So that requires growth and change and doing things which are against your natural swing. Similarly, if you are the kind of person who brainstorms and just shares all the time what you're thinking, you've got to find ways to modulate that even though it's not your natural swing. Because as a founder, as a CEO, you can really have to be uh, disciplined and intentional in the way you communicate. That is one example of the unnatural act of leadership. You have to learn to delegate even though you're a control freak. You have to give feedback to people, even though you might've been raised in an environment where people didn't really talk about that kind of stuff and you don't really know how to. Not only that, but I really think that one of the unnatural acts is you sometimes have to praise your employees and tell them they're doing a great job because you need them to stay focused and motivated, even when they're screwing up. That is unnatural. And I think that as a leader, you need to learn and grow by taking on these unnatural acts and teaching yourself or hopefully learning with a coach or a mentor how to be a leader. One of the questions we have from the audience is, I find that coaching entrepreneurs is great, but does not bring home the bacon. Do you give thoughts and advice, please? So they'd like some thoughts and advice on this. Well, um, if what you mean is, how do you charge for, how do you charge fee, like a living wage, right? Yeah, for right. Fees yeah. for your coaching practice. Yeah. Um, I guess I would say two things. One is, who are you targeting? Because actually... There's a lot of money right now out there for entrepreneurship. And also there's a lot more focus on leadership development and the importance of coaching. In fact, a number of venture firms have decided to put aside some small percentage of their funding for every company they fund specifically for leadership coaching and leadership development. So I would say it's a question of kind of where you're looking. Second thing I would say is as a coach, One of the things, a coach who runs my own business, I know that I have to build my brand. I have to do thought leadership. 
I have to put my ideas out there. I have to build a network of people who are going to refer clients to me. And all of us, if we want to be successful as coaches, have to raise our vis visibility to stand out as a premium, premium service. And that is what I have done. And that's what I would suggest you do as well. And, and, and do you have other people working with you or is it just you? It's just me typically. Um, but I do when I, like, for example, there's a company I'm involved with right now and I'm coaching the founder, the co-founder CEO and the co-founder, uh, the other co-founder. And then I have a number of coaches who work for me and they are coaching the executive team. So I have a pretty strong network, especially through my, um, my uh, connection to the, or my inclusion in the Marshall Goldsmith 100 coaches, which is a global gathering of the world's really top coaches. And so through that network, I have a number of uh, folks I can draw on to bring into different kinds of engagements. How, how did you end up being in the 100? And is that like a membership driven thing or how does that work? Right. So Marshall Goldsmith is sort of the legendary, you know, top executive coach on the planet. Um, and I met him 16 years ago on my pilgrimage to San Diego, which is where he was living at the time. We took a long walk together. And then at the end of that long walk, he said to me, why don't you do this project with me? So I was like very excited. I was quite a young coach. And um, I worked with him shoulder to sh shoulder, shoulder for two years. And then also he's been mentoring me and, you know, being a good friend and um, really amazing advisor and colleague for years. About five years ago, Marshall had this epiphany that he wanted to pay it forward. So he created this collective of the 100 coaches, which are a number of uh, different leadership uh, individuals. Again, it's a lot of very top coaches in the world, also HR professionals, also executives like CEOs and other executives of, of other companies, um, also thought leaders and academics. So we are all together in this group and um, he calls it his legacy and pay it forward project, which means that he's teaching us everything he knows for free. And in return, when we get old like him, as he says, our mandate is to pay it forward to other people. Well, that's fantastic. And he does have such uh, a legendary reputation. Well, yes. What is the profile? And, and, and you probably could be a great investor because of the insights that you have here. What's the profile of a great entrepreneur based on your vast experience at working with entrepreneurs? You know, you've been doing this 21 years. You probably yeah. know, have a profile of what this looks like. Yeah, I definitely have a profile. So to me, this is not going to surprise anybody. It's like first, second, and third is like grit, grit, grit. Every client I've ever worked with has had more than one near-death experiences. And what distinguishes great founders and entrepreneurs is like, that's where the juices get flowing and that they are comfortable kind of like going forward and continuing because every day you stay in business, every week, every month is another day you get to play. And then amazingly, miracles happen if you can just stay in the game long enough. So grit and persistence are, of course, they lead the way. Also, they're the kind of people who have this insight about the future which you know hasn't quite caught, uh, caught up with everybody else yet. And I see it over and over how they sort of have this very clear vision of the future, which for them lives like our reality. That to me is also amazing. Um, also somebody who's constantly coming up with new ideas and ways to do things. Those are the, the, the sort of the hallmarks, I would say, of a great entrepreneur. I would say the great entrepreneur who can then turn into CEO has to do with somebody who is willing and able and desirous of growing as a leader, understanding that their path needs to be filled with personal and professional growth so they can meet the moment of leadership as their company grows and their company tends to grow rapidly. So they need to also match that pace and grow rapidly as well. I think some of the great entrepreneurs like Steve Jobs recognize that they maybe lead in a different way, but having the day-to-day -day person that interacts with the troops is not their skill set. And yeah. they go and identify uh, the right type of person to work for them. Do you think yes. great entrepreneurs are, are born or can someone be taught? I mean, you've seen now enough of them. What yeah. do you think about that? Yeah, I think most often there are early markers of somebody being an entrepreneur. So my experience is that with my clients and all the founders I've talked to, also through my, my podcast, also called From Startup to Grown Up, is that there's some germ of entrepreneurial spirit 
in their childhood story, but not always. For example, um, I recently spoke to Zvi Band, who was the um, founder, founder and CEO of Contactually, which just got sold to Compass, which is a you know now a very big public company. Yeah. Um, he told me that there was no lemonade stand in his past. That's not what he was about. But his parents instilled in him the sense of autonomy and following what you love and following your passion. When he got to his first day job and saw people kind of clocking in nine to five, he just thought, okay, this is not for me. And that's what sparked his desire to be an entrepreneur. So it can sometimes be the drive for autonomy, which is also there. But I think something like that has to be inside of you to be an entrepreneur. I don't. I think entrepreneurship has to be catalyzed, not necessarily taught, because the truth is it's a very hard road. And if you're not naturally inclined to that, there's no reason to learn it. Just stay, <laughs> stay at IBM. It's great. Yeah, it's staying your lane there, for sure. Yeah, yeah. How do you know if someone is coachable and not pretending to be coachable? Because I've seen often where, uh, I, I, in fact, I was on the board of a company where the entrepreneur graduated from uh, Harvard. He was very smart. And the board said, hey, you need coaching. He really didn't believe in it, but he yeah. just smiled and said, oh, yes, of course, I'll take the coaching. And I think it became very frustrating to the coach. We have one of those guys playing for the Sixers, Ben Simmons, who's like that too. So <laughs> what do you, you know, how do you know if somebody is coachable and or not coachable? Yeah, I mean, they're coachable because they are co are being coached. And what that means is they're they're changing. They are growing. They are having insights. They're reflecting back to you something that we just talked about a week or two ago. And they are doing their sincere best to integrate at least a few of the findings that we have. And so really, to me, coaching is about change. And if someone is coachable, they are in the journey of change, whether it's fast or slow, whether it's... Um, you know, something that they have, that they are resistant to, like they, they're often people who will explain to you why it's not going to work, why I explain to you why you're wrong, why you're misreading it, who get defensive. And then a day or two later, they're like, yeah, I guess you're right. So sometimes it takes people time to digest as well. I have a lot of room for people to kind of act out who they are, but ultimately coaching is about change. And if that person is making change, they're coachable. And if they're not making change, they're not coachable. How do you define being vulnerable? Because you talk about that in the book. And why do you have to be, uh, why do you have to be like that to be coachable? Yeah. So vulnerability has to do really with letting, letting there be some chinks in the armor. And there's a lot of things to say about that. First of all, if you're a leader and you're perfect and you can do everything better than everybody else and no one can contribute to you, it's pretty off-putting to your people. It is not a great marker. You think it's a great marker of a leader, but actually it's not a great marker of a leader because your people want to contribute. They want to feel that their work matters and they want to feel like they're making progress. That's the most motivating thing for your people. If, you got, if you're all set and there's nothing anyone can do and they can't find access to you, the truth is it's demotivating to your people. The other thing, the, the sort of cousin to that is is that if they can kind of get you as a human being and not as just some statue, they'll just be more aligned to you, more loyal to you. And when the chips are down, they'll give you your discretionary effort. The second thing is that when um, you show vulnerability, it is kind of by definition, an openness, an openness to a new idea, an openness to, I'm not really sure what to do, I'm open to ideas. And so that is also, I think, an important marker for coaching but the last thing I would say about vulnerability is that vulnerability doesn't mean that, you know, you should like cry all the time and like, you know, even, um, you know, show tell everybody I'm completely freaked out because I think we're going to run out of money or I'm completely freaked out because I'm afraid bad things are going to happen. No, you are still the leader. So you do need to have kind of a container and be purposeful, even in showcasing your vulnerability. It does not mean sharing every single thing that pops into your head and sharing all your firm, your fears and concerns with no discipline whatsoever. So lighting your hair on fire and saying, we're screwed. Uh, I'm out of here. <laughs> not uh, it's not going to show good leadership. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, should right. every leader have a coach and how often should they meet? And how does someone pick the coach that will get the most out of their talent? That's got to be hard. 
Oh, yeah, that's very hard. So first of all, yes, of course, everyone should have a coach. You know, it to me, I do think of, you know, high performing leaders, the same as world class athletes. It goes without saying that all world class athletes have a coach. Typically, the better you get at athletics, the more coaches you have. So, of course, it helps you in so many ways, both in uh, giving you inputs and also giving you safe space to vent, to have upset, to not know, to be vulnerable. Okay, so that's one thing. Um, the second thing is how often should we meet? Um, it depends. Sometimes I meet weekly with my founders and with my clients and my leaders. Sometimes it's twice a month. And depending on how far along it is, sometimes it's once a month, right? So something like that. I think when you're first starting out with someone, it's important to have a, a regular cadence with them. Um, and then the last thing, I think that is a very interesting question. How do you find the right coach? Number one, find your, um, talk to your friends and, and your colleagues. Who are they working with who are great? And why do they recommend them? And what specifically have they gotten? I think people don't ask for evidence enough. What specifically have they gotten out of this coaching process? The second is, I really think it's important to do a little piece of coaching with this person to see if your styles are going to mesh and if you can kind of relate to this person. And the third thing is, I think it's really important to say, do I like this person? Because you're going to spend a lot of time with this person. You got to let your hair down with this person. I used to think, eh, chemistry isn't really that important. And now I realize both with my clients and also in my own life, Chemistry is important because you kind of want to look forward to your time with this person because that's going to actually support the coaching. I a hundred percent agree with that. Um, yeah. Because like most everybody uh, has a therapist and uh, if, if you're not comfortable with that person, it's going to be a, a waste of time for everybody. So uh, true. Question, a question from the audience. Do you ever accept a position as an advisor with a startup with small stock position vested over time. Clearly, yes, there's an I, interest in having you on this team. <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm happy to talk to you about that. I do occasionally do that. Uh, you know, I have to obviously talk and, and sort of see where I'd fit into the situation. And also if I think that that stock is going to be worth something, because that is important to me. But yes, um, yes, that's something I do. Yeah, I, I've done that plenty of times. I wish I could say one of those turned out to be like, um, or, you know, life altering. And right, unfortunately not. Yeah. Even though you think, damn, I know this I know. really well. I know. I know. You got to keep your, I, I hear you. I mean, as you know, it's a risky game. Yeah. Uh, but it, it makes some sense to give those things to try. Look, the painter from Facebook took his 50,000 in Facebook stock and ended up being worth 300 million. So mm -hmm. we should only be so lucky. Another exactly. question from, from your from mouth to God's ear. God's ears, of course. <laughs> Um, another question from the audience, how does culture fit into coaching of leaders? Do you ask leaders what their culture is, or does the culture come as a result of their building the startup? Also, what kind of leaders create the best culture? So should I break that down for you one at a time? Yeah, let's go one okay, at a time. So let's, so let's start with the first one. How does culture fit into your coaching of leaders? I love the topic of culture. I devoted an entire chapter in my book from startup yeah. to grown up, chapter four to culture. Um, oh, there's so much to say about this. First of all, I think it's really important in my coaching of leaders to help them discern the fact that they have a culture. So they've either intentionally built a culture, like one company I work with, intentionally for two years really noodled on four core values that they continue to integrate into the culture, even as the company has grown. So that is a very intentional example. Another example is where, you know, I'll ask the founder and other people, what's the culture like around here? And they really don't have an answer. So um, that's a different question uh, that, that helps me assess how important the, the leaders think culture is and help them understand how important it is because culture ties together people. It helps you hire the right people who are both going to fit in and add to the kind of company you're trying to create and also meet your expectations because you hired them for certain cultural values. It helps you create norms inside of your company. It helps people understand what's rewarded. So culture is, I think, a critical part in the work that I do, in coaching work I do. Yeah, I taught 10 years at Wharton MBAs and executive MBAs. And 
during the Steve Ballmer era, which was the lost 10 years for Microsoft, I mean, it was a dead 10 years for them. The culture there was so bad that they were all warlords in each department and didn't feel uh, the camaraderie uh, of working together for the betterment of Microsoft. So they were able to live forever off of their the platform they created. Now the new guys come in and he's blown the doors off and now they're a hot company all over again. So here's the next question from the same gentleman. Do you ask leaders what their culture is or does the culture come as a result of their building the startup? So I definitely will ask leaders what their culture is. And also when I do 360 feedback, which is feedback where I ask people around the leader, what are her strongest strengths? What are her development opportunities and weaknesses? And what suggestions do you have? I will also say, what's the culture like around here? And people will either give me a consistent answer or an inconsistent answer. So that's also very interesting in and of themselves. Um, and I think that the culture, if you don't, if you aren't purposeful about it, then the culture just kind of, get, it just sort of rises up. And to your point, Mark, it might be fiefdoms. It might also be, we love each other, but we're not a high performing team. Right. Uh, there's a lot of, you know, sort of toxic and unintended toxic cultures. It could also be, You've hired all your friends and then you have new people come in and you have a click culture where all the friends hang out together and the newcomers feel like outsiders. And that is not an engaging and um, motivating culture. So a lot of to say about that, but I think it's very important to recognize that you need to be intentional about building your culture to have any kind of shot about building a healthy culture. Yeah. And it has to be authentic. Definitely. Because uh, people, you know, you have all these people who have these signs in their uh, in the building, and when you come in and everything, and they try to, I guess, brand a culture that may not even exist because people don't right. feel it. It's not. Right. It's not real. The next question the same gentleman has is, what kind of leaders create the best cultures? So, what's the profile look like? Um, I think that they have a spark in them that recognizes that the kind of workplace is important. I just spoke to uh, Chris Shu, who is the founder and CEO of Zebo, which is a real estate platform, the first of its kind that helps um, landlord, independent landlords manage their finances. And he told me that the spark for him was on the plane as he was thinking about starting this company with his co-founders, he just realized I'm not going to do this with my co-founders unless we all agree on the kind of company we want to build. And he wrote it down. Like, I think he actually wrote it down. Like, I'm going to use my fingers like this. He uh, typed it up on his computer and shared it with his co-founders. Uh, so I think it's the, and, and they all, then it became the basis of a conversation. By the way, I'm happy to talk about co-founder relationships too, but it's, you know, the kind of leader has the beginnings of an understanding that they're not just building a product, they're building a business. And that is going to require people to um, be a certain way. And it's going to require them to shape the company as a whole. So I think that is the kind of leader who understands the importance of culture. All right. So you wanted to talk a little bit about uh, working with a partner. And I've had yeah. that experience. And one of my experiences was awesome. And the guy was hardworking and he was smart and everything. And the other partner had this amazing resume and uh, the investors uh, wanted to shut the business down because he was such a bad partner. Mm. So tell, tell us, how, you know, the ones that work, how does that, how do they make that work? It's like a marriage. As I say in chapter nine, a co-founder, <laughs> no. when you have a co-founder, you have a marriage. Yeah. And so my solution to that is to do a co-founder prenup. So unlike your actual prenup with your actual spouse, the co-founder prenup is not a legal document, but it is a set of questions that you and your co-founder or co-founders should ask each other before you get into business together. It's astonishing to me how little diligence people do before they do this incredibly important relationship decision together. So some of the questions that I think it's critical to ask your co-founders are, how do you handle conflict? Here's how I handle conflict. How do you make decisions? Here's how I make decisions. When we have a strong disagreement, how are we gonna decide? Also, what kind of business are we running here? 
right? Are we trying to build a lifestyle business? Are we trying to build a massive business? Two co-founders I've worked with quite recently have, well, they, they ended up parting ways. Why? Because seven years ago, when they started the company, one had this idea in his head that he wanted to build a lovely kind of agency model. The other one, and they took venture money. The other one was focused on venture money and focused on having, you know, a very massive outcome. Right. Seven years later, the seeds of that disagreement were, were sprouting in full view when they disagreed about everything. And so it's like deciding that in advance and being clear about that and revisiting your decisions and kind of what you're going for and how your relationship is, is critical to good co-founder relationships. I think that's the most important thing that you could possibly tell people today based yeah. on my experience of being in partnerships or um, working with um, partnerships. Because I had uh, 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 partners who seven years, like you did, and one of the partners said, I think for us to get to the next level, we need to bring as a CEO. And the other partner got so upset that when the guy left that day, he changed all the locks and they ended up in court and that dragged on wow. for two years yeah. and it yeah. eventually cratered the business. Uh, can you share any great success stories were asked by the audience? Can you share any great success stories where your coaching resulted in a game-changing outcomes, new products, big jump in revenue, meaningful pivot? And, and maybe that's a hard one to ask because you're working more about how they interact with people. But is that... Um, I'm happen? happy to I'm happy to talk about that, especially right. this week. Thank you for asking. On Tuesday, which is the same day as my book launch from Startup to Grown Up, mm -hmm. uh, one of my clients got news. My client Augury, they did not get the news, but they did the press release that they had they had landed a very big funding round and were now valued at one billion dollars. So the unicorn status, right? So the CEO Staryoskovitz was kind enough to post on LinkedIn that he was excited about the news, but even more excited about, you know, talking about my book and specifically that I had been instrumental in helping him achieve sort of the, the goals of, him, of himself as a CEO in order to lead Augury to this game-changing outcome. So thank you for asking the question at a great moment in time. Um, and I would say that it's, your point is accurate. It's the little micro moments that we do together that lead someone like Sar and other CEOs like him to grow, to then lead the business to tremendous outcomes. So another question from the audience, who should use a coach? I was a founder for 16 years, got out of it, and I'm now the CIO now uh, of this company. I don't want to be a founder again, but I really like the idea of having a coach. Do I qualify? Dan, you qualify. No, don't let anyone tell you you don't deserve a coach. You deserve a coach. Um, I think that anybody who wants to learn and grow as a professional can benefit from coaching. And then it's a question of the level of coaching. So honestly, a new college you know, uh, graduate in their first job can absolutely benefit from coaching. But do they need the kind of specialty and sophistication that a coach like me brings to the table? Maybe not. Maybe they need a career coach. Maybe it needs to be more affordable in line with their budget. Certainly entrepreneurs always do benefit, benefit from a coach. Uh, you know, a third time founder came to me recently and he said, I've been a very successful founder and he had, he had like all, all the trappings to prove it. And I believed him. And he said, I feel like I have been successful despite my lack of leadership skills. And for this third go round, I want to be successful because of my leadership skills, because I know that I can get a better outcome if I'm a better leader. So that is the kind of coaching, you know, sort of at a, at a different kind of level for entrepreneurs, but all leaders could use somebody to bounce ideas off of and also to help them fast forward their own learning and growth in all you circumstances. Must, you must've been smiling uh, from the sense that this guy had the insight uh, about himself that oh, yeah. he was wanting that because oftentimes Definitely. these massive egos, um, when they've had success, they don't realize, first of all, how lucky they were. And sometimes they were successful in spite of themselves because the technology was uh, so amazing. I mean, I right. kind of think we're finding that out with Bill Gates as more stuff comes out that 
the technology made him successful, maybe not so much how he manages people. Uh, another true. question, how do you handle situations where the vision and culture do not mesh? Uh, oh, that's a really good question. And it's uh, time consuming, basically. So the vision may be, you know, requiring, for example, um, a change in, let's say, direction. So we used to need people who were really good at maybe hustling and, and being scrappy. And now we've, you know, sort of evolved into a place we need more consistent uh, ways of doing things and more process kind of people. So you're really trying to evolve a scrappy culture to more of a process culture. Well, you have to really change as a leader, you have to change what your reward because you've got all these people who you hired for sort of scrappy. And so you've got to now start rewarding process and you've got to start rewarding consistency and celebrating it, you know, in all hands and in one-on-ones, you've got to hire more process people. And then you've got to also hold the scrappy people accountable to building more repeatable kinds of tools or, you know, repeatable kinds of products. Not everybody is going to want to do that. And there'll be a natural self-selection process where people leave, or you'll have to unfortunately part ways with people because you need to build a certain kind of culture that's going to get you to the next level. So I think that that is, first of all, self-awareness, right? A sort of an awareness of, ah, what we have right now is not going to get us to where we want to go. And then it has to be the CEO, the CEO's willingness to sort of dive into that environment and then make the painful changes that you need to, because change is painful and culture change is difficult, but they have to sort of hold the line and move forward. Otherwise, it'll always be kind of murky. Another question from the audience. We have lots of questions from the audience and we have a hard stop at one o'clock, folks. Uh, In your experience, uh, are all startup uh, founders fit to be leaders or is there a point where they should hand the reins to others to lead. So sometimes, you know, you, you're only so good, you know, maybe it's five people, 10 people, hundred people, and then you've hit your own ceiling. So yeah. You know? Yeah. So I think that's a really important question. It's a great question. And, you know, I address this a little bit in chapter one, because first of all, the first question, any, any founder has to ask herself is, do I really want to be the CEO? And I think that's like a deep question that you really have to sort of say, you know, I am no longer going to be the product person if I'm the CEO person, because I'm going to be the company person. So I think that, first of all, yes, in my experience, I have certainly met founders who are not cut out to be the CEO. What often happens, certainly in in a case that I'm thinking of right now, what we did, we had a lot of difficult conversations, not difficult because I'm like, you shouldn't do this, but more like, wow really mining what's underneath, right? There's a lot of pressure on the founder to be the leader and to stay the leader. So him unraveling all the social pressure he was getting, unraveling the pressure from the board because half the board thought you need to be the CEO, you need to stay. And half the board was also insistent that he didn't have what it took to be the CEO. He agreed with them. He didn't want that job. And so we really worked for him to come to terms with that and find his own intuition and find his own voice for that and then be able to articulate to the board what he was going to do about it. And then they all worked together to find another, another CEO for the business. Another founder I spoke to, he told me, and this was so, I, I thought it was very insightful. He said, after I've done this for five times, I realize I'm really good at zero to 10 million. After that, it's like, this is not my show anymore. And he now is like more comfortable finding another CEO to take his place. How smart is that, right? I know, I mean, amazing. Everybody should be applauding him. For yes, recognizing exactly. them. I think a lot of uh, entrepreneurs are afraid that if they tell potential investors, I don't want to be the CEO, I want to be the chief uh, innovation officer, that they will not invest in them. I think that's what their fear is. I um, think that's part of it. Yeah. Um, the question from the audience, you mentioned earlier that when startups get funding, they get leadership coaching. Is that too late to find out that you are or not good leader? Is that a quick way pre-fundraising to find out if you are a good leader or not? I think that the the honest truth is that coaching is helpful no matter where you are in your journey. Is coaching amazing at the very beginning where you're just two people and you know in your parents' garage or, or your own garage or whatever? Of course. But 
Are people focused on coaching at that moment? Not necessarily. They may not know about coaching. They may not have funding for coaching. They may not be able to find the right coach. They all also could really benefit from mentorship, finding entrepreneurs who've done the successful entrepreneurs who've done this before. So that's one thing. The second thing is that I do know that many founders and CEOs and leaders come to me when there's already a problem. So one CEO came to me, he called me up and he was like, well, let's meet immediately. I'm like, okay, fine. So we met immediately. And here's what happened. He had um, been walking out to get an iced coffee and his team followed him and they sat him down in the coffee shop and said, everyone's going to quit. There's a massive problem. Um, you have to fix it, you know, kind of with a lot of vitriol. And it was very confronting for him, yeah. quite scary for him as a first time founder, jarring for him. And he called me. So there was already a problem there. And so we together unraveled the problem and helped him shore up and build his leadership skills so that he led the company to a very successful outcome. So I think that coaching can fit in any time in the entrepreneurial journey. Of course, earlier is better, but it's not always possible. The other thing is that I would say that the really the best leaders are the best readers. And they're constantly reading management books and leadership books and coaching books. So they're doing also some self-study on their own. That's why I started this podcast. And you're, uh, you're we're almost close to 80 Amazing. authors I've interviewed in the year and a half. Uh, do it. But I, I agree with you because every, every time you meet successful CEOs, they always say, oh, I read this book. I read that book. I'm reading this, especially autobiographies and biographies. Uh, they're really big in that or a thought-provoking books itself or an Adam Grant or something like that, not just the ones where they kind of skim the services. Yeah. And that's what we try to provide here every week is for folks like you to share this. Uh, pushback by partners is healthy if done right. No pushback can be counterproductive without constructive challenges by partners can lead the startup down the road um, for the wrong sure. path. I mean, your, your I, have, I totally think that healthy conflict is super important between co-founders and also within your employees. And actually part of your job as leaders to create psychological safety, which has been proven to be the most important element in highly effective teams so that people, people can speak up. Um, between co-founders, it's normal. Smart adults disagree. They should be disagreeing and that could be a healthy tension. So what I advise um, co-founders to do is to have conflict night, maybe once a week, certainly once a month, where they practice bringing up difficult issues together. If they practice it, it's like embarrassing and uncomfortable, but they have building muscle memory so that when there are really important situations, they're able to bring it up and talk it out together and to have that conflict together. Also, you want to help each other diagnose your conflict style. Some founders, certainly I'm picturing these two, two co-founders right now, one of them, he grew up in an environment where we didn't talk about conflict or problems. And so when there's an issue, he withdraws. The other uh, partner, the other co-founder grew up in a family where everybody got into it. So at first, that was a very difficult match because they weren't communicating effectively. But over time, they were able to understand each other's style and give each other room to be who they are, to give both of them space to work out conflict, to address it and work it out. And this goes back to what you had said before about partners working together and laying all that out in the beginning. Because I think even in our personal relationships, you know, since I've been divorced, when I look for someone I, in the very beginning, I asked the questions that you asked because that's uh, no different, um, you know, what you're talking about, uh, or else you're wasting people's time. Um, if in fact, you're not aligned in the way that you communicate differences, especially when you have disagreements, how do you actually handle those? Uh, another question from the audience, I, I assume going from startup to grown up doesn't happen overnight. How long on average would you work with someone to start seeing leadership results? Oh, I, when I work with someone, I see results very quickly because there's two things that happens. The new person shows up and we start having conversations and this person's never thought about it that way before. And so that person who's, if they're responsive to coaching, they will be responsive immediately to our new interaction. The second thing is, as I said before, 
I do 360 feedback for folks, which means I talk to people all around them. And when I give them the results of the 360 feedback, what they find is they can appear to walk around in a bad mood and everyone gets kind of freaked out about it. Well, they change that immediately. What they can find is that they are not communicating enough. And so people don't really know what they're thinking or, or what, they're, what they want them to do. Well, we can fix that immediately once it becomes resolved. Or surfaced, I should say. I love the 360s because I do them with my clients. And I had one where he was totally shocked when I told him that everybody had to check his temperature when he walked in the building, whether to tell him bad news or anything that, you know, seriously had to discuss with him. If he was in a bad mood, they just waited until he became in a good mood. He had no idea. Right. Uh, is, Is there a difference in coaching men and women entrepreneurs? And if so, what is it? I want to say that I don't think we can sort of think as black and white or binary about that. I know that there are a lot of memes, let's say, about women are like this and men are like this. In my experience, in the sanctity of the coaching room, all the men I work with shed tears at some point and are very emotional at some point. And there are plenty of women I have worked with who lack empathy. And so... I think that sort of, you know, the, 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 the specifics on that, I cannot really generalize, except for this one thing. I will say that it is the data shows that women are very underrepresented, uh, both obviously as, as investors, but then when that trickles down as entrepreneurs, which means women have a harder time getting funding, even landing a team and getting people to believe in them. And so what that means is they would say they have to work harder. Um, I think that is accurate. And what I do is I try to help women when that's the case, um, make sure that they're doing the the networking activity specifically to build the right network that's going to let them achieve their goals, both in terms of getting funding, also bringing the right people on board. Um, and I think that can sometimes take a little extra work for them to do. Yeah, I think so too. Do, do you encourage them to go back and get degrees or take classes? Uh, online or at colleges to keep sharpening their leadership skills? Um, I encourage everybody I work with to do self-study. Why wouldn't you do self-study? It's the same as we talked before. Read books, take courses, listen to podcasts. There's so much education out there. But the truth is, I don't typically have to tell the founders I work with to do that. They're typically doing that themselves. Um, You write about leadership styles. Many new entrepreneurs look at famous entrepreneurs and try to copy them, you know, to see how Elon Musk uh, works or they, you know, how many people try to copy Steve Jobs, even the way he dressed. Uh, And and that includes Elizabeth Holmes, right? She dressed and tried to carry herself just like Steve Jobs. Mm -hmm. Is there one correct style? There is definitely. There's definitely not one correct style. Definitely, you want to find your own style and figure out what's going to work for you and for your company. I think that there is a very big danger in you copying someone else because, let's face it, one way that we, you can think what you want about Elon Musk, but like, yeah, he's a very successful founder. Let's be honest. Like, he really <laughs> is, right? We have some and, reasons why. Yeah, yeah. And you have to realize that that is like a, a case, a corner case, an outlier. Find leaders who you admire and draw from their styles, integrate them into your style and observe with data what is working at your company in terms of how you are leading. And that's how to really uh, bring together your leadership style. I think you're right. You write in the book uh, about natural swing. So what do you mean by a CEO's natural swing related to feedback? And what's the best way for a leader to give criticism? Right. So the natural swing in this case is it's kind of like it's the thing that you do most naturally. With feedback, normally, if I'm going to be binary about it, it falls into silence or violence, as in I'm not going to say anything. I'm not going to say anything. I'm not going to say anything. And this person keeps doing this thing you don't want them to do, but you don't want to say anything. That's silence. If that goes on long enough for some small infraction they do, you'll go to violence, which means you will explode at them. Or perhaps 
you're the kind of person who anyway tends to take small things uh, and, and have an, uh, an emotional, an overly emotional um, response to them. So that again is violence. So your natural swing may fall somewhere in there, probably does. You probably will have to adjust your natural swing no matter what. And I want to say this about feedback. Feedback is designed to change behavior, not to make people feel bad, not to make sure that you blame people, not to keep score. It's only done to help people change their behavior. So if, by the way, if someone's not going to change their behavior, then don't bother giving them feedback because it's not necessary. It's not for you to express yourself. However, you want to build a great relationship with your employees so that they know you are on their side. So that when you give them difficult feedback, like I need you to integrate a lot more with your peers, or you are not achieving your goals and your team does not know what's going on. I need you to pull them together and give me a plan for how you're going to achieve your goals. That's like harsh feedback. But if you're doing it because, for example, I know that you can do it. I care about you and where your career is going. I want you to be successful. That is why I'm wasting my breath giving you this feedback. So let's work together on solving this problem. That is the best way to give feedback, even if it's difficult, because it showcases I am on your side. I like what you wrote about handling stress related to the damage an angry CEO could do to his organization. Talk a little bit more about that. About you mean about how um, the how the stress can get to you, and then and yeah, yeah. Is it, yeah. I think that uh, founders and all leaders don't always realize the outsized impact they have on the organization. So what you said earlier, Mark, is accurate. Everyone's like checking your mood. You know, even your facial expression is not your own when you are a leader because people are always interpreting you. So if you haven't eaten lunch and it's three o'clock and you're getting a little ornery, which does happen with some of my clients, then you sort of show up in the meeting as ornery, as grouchy. You might have a little explosion with your people and that sets everybody back because they're like wondering or they're not wondering. They're texting each other talking about, oh, the boss, this and the boss, that. They're also wondering if they should go home and update their resumes. That is damaging. Even that little moment, you've then got to bring people back from, oh, sorry, I should have had lunch or whatever. So it's really important for you to have emotional self-control. And if you need to and you should do meditation or fitness or other ways to calm yourself down on a regular basis, de-stress on a regular basis, make sure you're getting enough sleep, have the proper nutrition throughout the day. That's going to help you keep your mood even keeled. That's going to help you be an even keeled leader. That's important. When are a founder's passion a liability? When they are overly passionate and under-disciplined. So that means that they might think the market's going this way. They're passionate about it, but they haven't done the data. They haven't done the research on it, so they don't have the data. And the second is that if they are so passionate in their organizations that when someone makes a little mistake, they are passionately punishing them, that is also not good. Um, what recommendations do you have for a startup CEO related to taking care of themselves mentally and physically? And what are the optimum amount of hours to work before there's a reduced value? Oh, well, I don't know what the optimal number is because I think that's different for everybody. But here's what I would say. If you work 18 hours a day, it's probably too much. And by the way, you're still not done with your work. So why don't you work 16 hours? You still won't be done mm -hmm. with your work. How about 14 hours? You got to decide what your stopping point is and watch yourself to see when you start having a decrease in um, your own optimal performance. And then the second thing is, as I said before, you must eat right, you must sleep, and you must get fitness. Um, lastly, what what is right and wrong? What's the right and wrong way to hire? Because the team is everything. So, what's the like maybe a couple of things that you should just look for when you're hiring people? Yes, when you're hiring, you should be very granular about the jobs you want to be done. So, specifically, what are they doing? And then get evidence in the interview from their references and anything you can get online. Evidence, specific behaviors that they have. Um, shown that show that they can do those specific jobs. What I think is too important is granular specifics on the job and evidence they can do it. Alisa, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. Congrats on the book. And I hope it becomes a bestseller. It should be. And thank I hope you. everyone that listens will be buying it. Have a great weekend. Bye, everyone. Have a great week. Thanks. Thanks, everybody. I loved it. Thanks, Mark. Bye. Now. Now.
Thank you for listening to another episode of The Best Business Minds. Tune in every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time for our live recordings. Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.